The Holy Gospel according to John, the 13th chapter. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. As I look out at you, I know most of you are old enough to remember the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It was indeed a box office hit back in... 1968. 
As I recall, it won two Academy Awards, one for Best Writing and one for Best Actress, which went to Katherine Hepburn. The plot of that movie centered on Emile. Emile, Emile that became a Meet the In-Laws dinner party. If you're curious and have not seen the movie, Netflix is your friend. You younger folks, that is, you might enjoy it. In any case, I mentioned that classic movie and share the title with you, not because of the awards that it won or the storyline, but just because I've always thought that title was a catchy one. Look who's coming to dinner. That's my play on the title of that movie. That's the title for my sermon. Look who's coming to dinner. Or wait a minute. Let's do this first. Let's look at who came to dinner. Okay? You know scripture is full of all kinds of stories. Stories centered on meals. Here are a few examples. In Exodus, the meal of Passover. A meal marking the end of life as slaves and also marking the beginning of a journey home into freedom, into the promised land. There's the story of satisfying morning meals, breakfasts of manna, and evening meals of quail. There in the wilderness of Sinai, as that ever-hungry people of Israel made that long journey home. There was a meal on the crest of Mount Sinai, where God himself sat at table with Moses and the elders of Israel, and a covenant was ratified. Much later in the scriptures, there was another mountaintop meal, some hilltop in Galilee, where bread was broken and fish were shared. At that meal, Jesus was the host to thousands, and thousands of empty bellies were filled. And then, of course, there is the meal that we remember tonight, today, Monday, Thursday, a meal presided over by our Lord on the eve of his death and shared with those 12 disciples seated with him at table. Now, if you were listening carefully during that overview of stories of biblical meals, you will have noted, or you should have, that there are a number of shared themes, little connections between all of these stories of meals. They all belong together and should be read together. We hear of the grumbling of empty bellies, real hunger. We hear of covenants, old and new. We hear of freedom, 
We hear of miraculous food. New beginnings. These are the little threads that tie all of these meal stories together. These are grand stories. These are amazing meals. And taken as a whole, they speak of God's amazing and wonderful compassion and love for us, his people. Over the years, many things have been said by Christians about all these meals. Even more has been said about the meal we remember today, the meal we call the Last Supper. From the very beginning of the church, I assure you, pastors, theologians, and teachers have spilled a lot of ink trying to capture, preserve the meaning of this meal, its essence, what it gives to us. This discussion, this dialogue began long ago with St. Paul, and you heard his thoughts on it. As Pastor Cale read to you a portion of 1 Corinthians, Paul shared with you a history lesson, did he not? On the night in which he was betrayed. And then on and on it goes. Early Christian bishops talked about this meal tried to unpack its meaning, its promise. And then, of course, there was Martin Luther who had a very heated argument with the Catholic Church. They said one thing, he said something else. And I assure you, the ink is flowing even today, and so too the words and the rhetoric. We got Roman Catholic ink, Lutheran ink, Baptist ink, Reformed ink, and on and on and on. The theologies of this meal are as varied as there are traditions and denominations. And at this point in my life, I'm rather happy that I don't have to think about this stuff much anymore. (laughs) It's too complicated. It really is. Too complicated. Too divisive. To the point that this meal is no longer a gift, but it's a battleground. Is it just a memorial? Is it a sacrifice? Is it a sacrament? What's so special about that bread? Those little cups of wine? What are they really? You've heard it all. Well, I'm going to share with you tonight a refreshing and simple account of what a small group of Christians did and what they said when they gathered to celebrate this meal, a meal they called the Eucharist or Thanksgiving. And all of this comes to us from a wonderful, wonderful, little, short, first century document called the Didache, the teaching. First and foremost in that little manual catechism, this stands out. Those humble folks wrapped their meal, their celebration of the Lord's Supper in prayer. Prayer, two of them, were the bookends for the meal. Prayer, meal, prayer. Listen to the instructions of how to pray as they first gathered at the table. 
Listen to these instructions about prayer that begins a meal. Now concerning the thanksgiving, give thanks thusly. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. And then a meal, a real deal meal. Not little artificial wafers, little cups of wine, plastic cups, but a real meal. Real food on the table, and enough of it to fill empty bellies. With these youngsters who were with me earlier tonight in the fellowship hall to talk about the Lord's table, I shared with them what I'm going to do. The last Sunday I am here at Faith, just before my retirement. It's going to be a communion Sunday. Come hungry, because we're going to have a lot more than wafers and wine. Maybe some oysters Rockefeller, lobster Newburgh, beef Wellington. Oh, and the desserts. It's going to be wonderful. And then you're going to fire me because I destroyed your diet but I won't care. We will have fun. Well, listen to the prayer spoken at the end of the meal. But after you are filled, full, give thanks. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you calls to tabernacle in our hearts, for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you, be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you freely gave spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. Before all things, we thank you that you are mighty. To you be glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church, deliver it from all evil and make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds sanctified for your kingdom which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. 
Let grace come. Let this world pass away. Hosanna to the Son of David. Maranatha. Amen. Two simple prayers, two similar prayers, two prayers ringing with thanksgiving, thanksgiving for God's promises to old King David, thanksgiving for the Messiah coming into history, thanksgiving for God's own presence in our hearts, thanksgiving for real food and the joy of eating it, thanksgiving for spiritual food, that is knowledge and faith and immortality. And both prayers are very clear on this most important point. These amazing gifts, these benefits are not provided by the meal itself, not the table setting, not a liturgy, not the food shared, not the bread, not the wine, but only because it comes from God and his servant, Jesus. They are the source of blessing. Now let me point out a few things that are not said in these two prayers. There is no mention, no reference to the historical Last Supper. It never comes up. There is no commentary, no restatement of the words of institution words we Lutherans always use when we celebrate communion together. There's no discussion of the meaning of the cup or the bread. There's no statement as to who is qualified to preside and serve as host at this meal, as in clergy. These prayers are simple and the meal shared by that community was simple. And yes, it would leave some theologians scratching their heads, wanting more. But I don't think there is more. Secondly, this meal doesn't look back. doesn't say anything about that prior meal. Jesus in an upper room in Jerusalem the evening before he went to the cross. Instead, what these two prayers and this old meal did was this. It looked forward into the future to the fulfillment of promises made by both God and Jesus. God's future graciously promised to his people. The day when he would gather them from every time and every place, every single corner of the universe into his holy and eternal kingdom. This meal long ago didn't look backwards, it looked forwards. And these believers were so hungry for that future, that new reality, they always ended their prayer with, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, amen. Well, that's enough of look who came to dinner. Now let's look at who's coming to dinner. This future this meal that is to come. But before we look at that meal, that coming meal, these old Christians and their instructions for sharing a meal together remind me today, every day, every week, 
to remain joyful, not maudlin, not somber, on this day we call Monday Thursday, not on any day when we celebrate Holy Communion. We are to be a joyful people because we know the future belongs to us because it already belongs to God. Well, now as to that future, look who's coming to dinner. You heard all about it as Pastor Carroll read to you a wonderful prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And the prophet wrote these words, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheath that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Look who's coming to dinner on a mountain. God and you and me and all of God's people. God himself will be there as host. The food will be plentiful and oh, it will be calorie filled and rich and wonderful. There will be no heavy hearts at that table. There will be no sadness. There will be no regrets held by the guests seated with God. It will be a joyful meal and it will be amazing. Our wonderful God and his son Jesus has spoken. They have promised us this meal, mountaintop meal with God, with fat things and great joy. So tonight, as you come to this table, remember, yes, what Jesus did on the eve of his death, but then turn your attention forward into the future And know that this meal is simply a foretaste, just a foretaste of that great feast to come. Enjoy it, savor it, and may it make your hearts fill with happiness and thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.